0: if there is an animal moving in the forest, his senses need to be active. What's happening with this mobile application is that all that they do is go mark buttons. And uh, and a lot of that knowledge is deteriorating. So there is this de-skilling process that's happening. Secondly, uh, everything's very automated, right? So uh, they have to continuously look and look at their mobile screens while they're walking. Just during my Uh, stay at Corbett while I was working there, four frontline forest staff were killed by tigers while they were putting in information, uh, mobile applications.
1: I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The anti is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of The anti you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look to stop the world from descending into dystopia subscribe to the anti dystopians wherever you get your podcasts Hi everybody we're so excited today because we're talking to Dr. Trishant Simlai who's a conservation researcher studying the politics and geographies of wildlife conservation in India and just recently completed his PhD in the Department of Geography at Cambridge. Um, So thanks so much for being here with us today.
0: Thanks, Irina. Very happy to be here and thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak on the Anti-Dystopian podcast.
1: Yeah, I'm really, really excited to get get into your research. Um, So maybe we could just start with a little bit about you, um, your background, your research interests. What led you led you to like get interested in conservation technology and surveillance studies, and how did that lead you to Cambridge?
0: Right. Um, so I um, I started my kind of career in conservation as a, a young teenager, um, and by training I'm a conservation biologist. So uh, I made this shift from the natural sciences to the humanities and social sciences after. Spending almost 10 years working in the field of conservation in India, uh, doing conservation practice. So I started with working with large carnivores like tigers, leopards. Uh, working on issues of human elephant conflict, human wildlife conflict in uh, around India's national parks and wildlife sanctuaries. Uh, and a large part of what the work that I did was installing uh, camera traps uh, or these conservation technologies, uh, uh, which also can be called as uh, you know they borrow heavily from surveillance technologies. CCTV cameras especially so um, I've done a lot of camera trapping myself and uh, uh, you know we would put camera traps to uh, look at population densities of tigers of leopards and then you would get people in these pictures and at that moment I never really thought about you know what happens to these pictures um, you know do people even really need consent uh, at that time i was this biologist who would uh, work to save tigers and save leopards and we did the same in the peruvian amazon for like six months so um uh, you know i came i come from a background in the natural sciences But uh, some experiences of, uh, you know, in the field uh, really made me rethink my approach because conservation as practice is really about humans and not really about species uh, because, uh, you know, it is entrenched in local social politics. So, uh, you know, I decided to uh, study for a master's degree in conservation, rural development, um, and that I studied at the University of Kent uh, in in England. And uh, it really, really shifted my perspective towards how conservation is practiced and like the, the dark history that conservation has so um and and yeah and after after the master's i went back and worked in india for, in, for social justice and conservation uh you know looking at the two aspects together um and then came to do a phd so you know to answer your question how did i get in you know interested in tech i was already always interested in conservation technology it's only uh In the last few years, I started looking at the intersections of, uh, you know, how conservation as a a practice is getting militarized in nature and the role that conservation technologies play in that. Um, And drawing from my own experience of many, many years in the field, lots of things just fit in one box. And I was like, I must look at this more deeply. So that's where my uh, PhD topic came from.
1: Yeah, that's so funny. You never think of things like the panda cam picking up people. Mm -hmm. Um, So such an interesting like lens into into surveillance studies that we don't really think about. So it's so fascinating. So I wonder then for for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with like conservation efforts and its history, maybe you could just sort of give us a lay of the land, so to speak. Um, how exactly, I mean, you mentioned camera traps, right? When people set up cameras that, you know, movement will set up so that can observe the behavior of certain species, but, um, what other technology is being used in conservation? And as you mentioned, how does that intersect with militarization and like surveillance more broadly? And maybe, you know, specifically you, you did your research in the Corbett Tiger Reserve. So maybe specifically
0: too about that as well. Right. So there are a whole range of technologies. So camera traps is just one of them. Um, Camera traps is the largest of uh, all the technologies that are used in terms of numbers. So, um, for example, India recently entered the Guinness Book of World Records for conducting the largest camera trapping survey in the world. So over 50,000 square kilometers of areas of India's land was surveyed through camera traps. Um, Then there are drones. Uh, Drones are used. uh, There are, uh, you know, these acoustic monitoring sensors, though that that's not being used in my field site. But uh, in my field site where I work, it's normally camera traps, drones, and uh, these really high powered thermal cameras that are on towers that uh, for probably for the audience uh, that's listening to you, might be familiar with panopticons. Uh, they they are literally a manifestation of the panopticon, like these massive towers, almost eleven to twelve of them, uh, on a, on a certain boundary of the Corbett Tiger Reserve, facing people, basically facing villages. Um, there are also. Uh, you know, a a software, a mobile application device that is uh, a technology for workplace surveillance. They don't call it a technology for workplace surveillance, but they call it uh, a technology for increasing the efficiency of forest workers. So, um, and that also has major implications. We can talk about that a little later. But just to kind of introduce the kind of, the lay of the land of conservation uh, globally or in India. So conservation has always been a very colonial project. Um, the way it is especially practiced now things are changing very very rapidly Uh, you know at least in the last two decades there has been a lot of talk about community-based conservation indigenous rights Uh, but in practice really it's not uh, really happened Uh, particularly in India um, you know conservation is still very very uh, uh, policed it's uh, you know the forest department that's responsible for Uh, implementing conservation policies uh, is actually a policing body. They were introduced as a policing body. So their job is to restrict people's access to natural resources. Um, And, you know, uh, there is this common myth that, you know, national parks and sanctuaries don't have people in them. Uh, In India, more than 1.5 million people still live inside national parks and sanctuaries. uh, And almost 10 times the number live alongside them. So uh, and and bear the cost of conservation every day, you know, because uh, conservation is given rise to. Uh all kinds of other problems, livelihood issues, human wildlife conflict, you know, an elephant is not going to come charging into the city of Mumbai or Bangalore, but go next to somebody's farm and kill somebody in like, you know, next to Kaziranga National Park or uh... so, you know, there are there are these issues. Uh, and, and it's it's a deeply uh, complex uh, problem, uh, although very, very necessary that we need to do conservation, but uh, it is still not socially just. Uh, um, and, uh, and increasingly, conservation as a field is becoming more and more militarized in nature. In response to all these global efforts of, uh, you know, conserving half the world and you know thirty by thirty and uh, all these uh, massive conferences that ask for uh, carbon uh, emissions to be controlled and uh, countries in the global south protecting more and more of their land. uh, It's basically a form of territorialization where the state uh, takes over forest resources uh, and lets indigenous people out of it, out of the decision making process. Um, And and in response, the the field is getting militarized in nature. You have paramilitary forces that are being deployed Uh, in India. Thankfully, we don't have that level of militarization, as you see in some countries like Africa, where you know, there are de facto shoot at site policies, you know, uh, rangers are, I mean, there was a massive investigation recently, and WWF was implicated in it, where uh, they were they were providing arms and ammunition and support to rangers who were conducting all kinds of sexual violence and, uh, you know, structural violence uh, in in, in Central Africa. So, uh, you know, it is it is quite complex, it is quite dirty. Um, In India, we don't have it this way, but we are going down that slope. There are some national parks in India where uh, rangers have been uh, accused of extrajudicial killings of people uh, and harassment of local communities, especially indigenous communities and people from lower castes is an everyday reality by forest uh, guards uh, in, in the lower rung of the forest department.
1: I wonder, you know, one of the really interesting things you talked about in your research was about um, how camera traps affected like women who were going out into these these forests. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how like the, you know, specifically this, this militarization and surveillance affects like the local, like as you mentioned, the local communities or indigenous populations who are, who are living alongside them. And especially what you talked about about how it's like transforming
0: boundaries and becoming a form of territoriality. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. So, uh, and this is my favorite part about my thesis as well, because I wasn't expecting to find this while I was doing fieldwork. So, um, you know, forests uh, in North India, actually um, most of India where, uh, you know, there are villages that live, you know, that are around these national parks and sanctuaries and tiger reserves. Mm -hmm. um, It is normally the women in the household that go to forest to collect forest resources so uh, uh, what's kind of necessary to clear for me right now is that you know forests are not these pristine core areas that have fences in india none of their national parks and sanctuaries have fences um, and they are divided into different zones like there's a core zone there is a buffer zone there is a tourism zone so buffer areas is are where people from villages are allowed to go and access natural resources Now, in places like Cobet, even these areas are highly policed because these areas also have high densities of wildlife, especially tigers and elephants. So, uh, you know, the forest department controls people's, uh, you know, movement in these areas. But people have been going in these forests for generations, for hundreds of years. And especially it's the women who go into the forest to collect forest produce. Now, um, The the society I worked in, and and especially particularly in North India, is a very extremely patriarchal and conservative society. And women do not really get the chance to talk to each other about personal problems, personal stories, uh, gossip, or kind of challenge uh, patriarchal notions of saying, you know, not drinking alcohol or not smoking a cigarette Um, in the village. They they challenge all these uh, structures in the forest where there's nobody watching them. So when they go to the forest, the forest is this space for freedom and liberation uh, for women where they practice a whole lot of uh, other, uh, you know, acts which they will, will not be able to do in the forest. For example, you would have two women discussing their husbands or, or their mother-in-laws or, you know, or something that is a taboo in the village that you can't really discuss because there are people listening. Now, what I noticed was that when camera traps were installed in places... Uh, Women would, uh, you know, potentially discipline themselves while... Uh, you know, speaking. So if they see a camera trap, they will not sing songs, for example. Now, singing songs, especially the uh, the local songs over there that are called Kumauni folk songs, it's central to the tradition of collecting forest resources because uh, while singing, they're they are doing two things. One, communicating with each other to see where each person is. And secondly, that they're keeping wildlife, large wildlife away from them because elephants and tigers would hear them and go away. Now, when there are camera traps around, they stop singing, they stop reading really talking to each other. They stop gossiping. So there are these other these all these kinds of effects that which kind of, uh, you know, uh, extends the gaze of patriarchy through camera traps into these forest spaces. But that's not it. Um, forest spaces are also used by women. So, you know, I'm talking about these are not right next to their homes. They have to sometimes walk five kilometers, six kilometers uh, away from their villages. Uh, And they sometimes have to go relieve themselves in the forest. So from just my case where I was working, uh, there have been instances where women have been captured in camera traps, relieving themselves. And in one case where uh, this particular women belonged to a lower caste community, uh, and she was autistic, she didn't see a camera trap, and uh, it photographed her in a, uh, a you know, in, in a very uh, problematic position. Uh, the, the, the photo was uh, then, you know, taken by forest, uh, you know, guards, forest staff, and wasn't deleted. Uh, and as a tool of casteist violence, it was uh, circulated in local Facebook and WhatsApp groups. Uh, and became it became a severe case of uh, sexual harassment, causing a lot of shame for not just the women's family but the entire village. And uh, you know and cases like this can actually be really, really problematic for conservation because then you when I mean, if you want to do conservation practice, you need to have local communities who trust you, uh, who work with you. And these cases just kind of bridge this uh, gap further. Um, in, and and obviously it is, I mean, it's also illegal to do something like this, but, uh, you know, it, it, people in such communities don't really have access to kind of legal mechanisms or the knowledge to challenge uh, such power structures. So, uh, you know, ca- camera traps seen as these harmless devices for noble good can do things like this. Right. So uh, from a gendered perspective, it's, uh, it's really, really uh, important to look at how uh, not so not just camera traps, for example, uh, drones, uh, uh, the forest department. So, you know, these things work in tandem with local power structures. Um, The the forest department would fly drones uh, very differently in a village that is dominated by say, upper caste landed elite groups, as compared to uh, a forest village uh, that is dominated by lower caste, uh, scheduled tribes, the Radivasi groups. So uh, in these landed uh, uh, villages where people have a lot of land and are powerful or upper caste, uh, the local uh, drone operator would first call up the village headman and say, um, we are coming. Can you meet us and direct us to where sh- we should fly the drone? While in complete opposite in nature, these guys would just drive to a forest village and fly the drone without anybody's consent. And they would fly the drone over people's houses in the forest village while they wouldn't do that in uh, the village which is dominated by upper castes. So, you know, you can really see these dynamics come into play uh, when these technologies are deployed.
1: I wonder then, so who, who are the actors who generally deploy these surveillance technologies? So obviously you've mentioned the state, For strangers, which is a militarized police, but also WWF, so like nonprofit organizations, international organizations, who's deploying this technology, and then who gets access to this information, and how do local communities, you know, either use or
0: resist this technology? Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, it is mostly the state that uses these technologies, but These technologies are introduced by not-for-profit organizations, NGOs, like say WWF or, you know, there's a whole range of um, wildlife conservation organizations in India uh, that look at, uh, you, you know, a project that may seem very fruitful, like, oh, let's... You, you know, let's monitor this forest with a drone, even when they don't need to, like, I mean, let's, mon- I mean, in India, you have extreme canopy cover, you know, you can't really see things on the ground. Yes, I agree that drones will have some ecological benefits, but they have to be used in that specific way. You also have to use this, uh, the, uh, a good quality drone that has more than 25 minutes of fly time. All these states are using drones that are 20 minutes fly time. I really don't know what kind of ecological uh, surveys they're going to do with it, or what kind of law enforcement they're going to do with. So uh, uh, it's mostly the state that uses these technologies. And in India, the bureaucracy is always fascinated by new projects. Um, So they were fascinated by camera traps when they came in. And uh, until recently, most of the camera trapping was being done with the help of uh, these NGOs. But uh, more recently now, and and this goes into another topic in in kind of data and and big data and surveillance, is that who owns the data and data justice, right? So uh, uh, recently, the governments and, and particularly the forest department bureaucracy realized that They have very little control on the data because it's the NGOs that use the data and publish papers out of it. So, um, uh, in in the last couple of uh, years, and actually last five years, the the state has been uh, very intentionally keeping all these NGOs out of Tiger Reserves because they want complete control of the data. Uh, and they they uh, they accused all these NGOs of not being transparent enough. So uh, slowly, the state is l- really pushing out these NGOs from main tiger areas and uh, building capacity by themselves in their forest force where they can, they, they can go and do their uh, camera trapping. Um, and all of this data finally goes to a government institute. In India, it is called the Wildlife Institute of India, where all of this data, including data of humans, data of, you know, you would have... Uh, a whole range of species, all that goes into one repository. Uh, it and, and that organization is called the Wildlife Institute of India. It, all of that data goes there. And I really don't know what happens with that data. So uh, you could have, you know, a scientist suddenly coming and saying that, Oh, we've got, uh, you know, these pictures of people, let's uh, uh, quantify from our cameras, how much headload of wood they're bringing in from the forest, or how much headload of grass they're bringing in from the forest. And all of that quantitative information then would be transferred to a paper in which they would argue that, this is the anthropogenic disturbance that is being caused by people through, you know, bringing resources from the forest. And let's, let's talk about policy of resettling these people from somewhere. So technology plays an important part in that as well. While the people who are being photographed have no idea that they have been photographed. And this is the conclusion or this is the inference that is being made out of a headload of wood a woman is carrying from, uh, from that camera trap, right? So uh, there are these issues uh, uh, around it. Um, yeah, so my research suggests both. Uh, so I, a lot of my research has suggested that, uh, d- that these technologies of control drones, camera traps, uh, um, and these, uh, you know, mobile applications, they are both co-opted uh, by communities and also resisted by communities. Now it really depends on what this community is, or who this individual is and how they're taking, let me give you an example from both the sides. So, for example, in 2019, uh, August, India, uh, the state of India, uh, abrogated what's called Article 370 of uh, the Indian constitution, which gave autonomous rights to Kashmir. Uh, And uh, that created a huge wave of nationalism and jingoism throughout India, you know, that, oh, we finally had, uh, we finally kind of integrated Kashmir into uh, India's territories. Um, And, uh, you know, while I was doing fieldwork, this nationalistic fervor was uh, present all around me. Uh, I, I I got to know uh, from my contacts there that uh, there is one indigenous community that, uh, you know, it's a forest dwelling pastoralist community, they're called One Gujars, and they track their ancestry back into that region uh, to, to Kashmir. And some of them on over tea were discussing how the abrogation of 370 would lead to private land, uh, like private investment in the valley, in the Kashmir Valley, and common land would be commons land. Uh, where they they would go and graze their cattle would be gone. Uh, They anyway have a problem with commons because very uh, rapidly commons are being converted into private land and state is acquiring all this land. Um, So uh, some local people uh, from upper caste groups, uh, 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 mostly Hindus, uh overheard this conversation and reported it to not the police, not the local police, but to the local forest department. And this is really interesting that how uh you know the how the forest department is looked at as this policing authority rather than this forest management authority. And uh, and also because they are in constant conflict with the one years because one years enter the forest for grazing their cattle, which they have always done, but their rights have been really subjugated since the time Project Tiger and Tiger Conservation interventions have come in. So uh they Reported it to the forest department and asked, like these are this is this is not the state; these are local communities, residents. Asked the forest department to monitor this one village with drones every day and put camera traps around their, uh, you know, they're called dheras. There's these settlements, Um, and and the forest department did it. Uh, So you know, it's really interesting how these nationalistic discourses uh, kind you know intersect with surveillance. Uh, and Islamophobia, and and where conservation surveillance technologies, again, that are, you wouldn't even think that these, these could be technologies that could be used for these purposes, are being used for these purposes. And it is not just the state which is doing it. It is, you know, it is local, powerful people who kind of co-opt. Uh, so uh, the same thing with gender, right? Like men in uh, villages, if they've had a fight with their wives, or if they want to control uh, their women uh, spending long hours in the forest they would ask the forest department to put camera traps in a certain area so that it discourages women because then they wouldn't you know they would they would not have time you know they would have to look for places to relieve themselves so they would be forced to come back into the village to relieve themselves. Uh, There there have been instances where uh, men have told me oh we have uh, you know LPG cylinders now we have cookers we have gas at home I don't know my why my wife goes to the forest to collect f- firewood she doesn't need to go to collect firewood which is true but that this is where they're missing the point that the forest is not just a space for resource collection it is also a space for talk gossip singing freedom liberation you know talking about pain and sorrow and all of that so men uh, you know then co-opt uh, these technologies ask the forest department to put more cameras in the forest or uh, you know speak to the local forest guard who's often sometimes becomes part of the village environment you know give them a give him like a a, a bottle of alcohol and ask whether in their pictures has their wife been photographed anywhere, or has others' wives been photographed anywhere? So it becomes a tool of gendered oppression. So there are ways in which uh, you know people resist as well. So for example, uh, you know I I know of instances where women uh, would completely stuff their head and uh, up till their eyes with uh, lots of leaves and wood, and only then walk in front of the camera. <laughs> So that their photos are not captured. Then yeah. I've seen instances where uh, people uh, have used very long uh, pieces of logs of wood uh, to, you know, forcefully push the direction of the installed camera trap into the other direction, the go and collect forest produce and then put the camera back in the same direction again. So, <laughs> you, you know, uh, and, uh, and, you know, and these things, Even the forest local forest guards and uh, local staff on the ground know that these things happen. So uh, unless and until there's something really major that that goes wrong, the forest department also doesn't take action with it. So these are, you know, these subtle forms of resistance. But then there are other forms of resistance, right? Like um, the forest department, as I said before, has given these mobile applications to their own staff where they go and, uh, you know, so a, a daily... Uh, frontline forest staff. His work starts very early in the morning uh, where he is expected to go and patrol his uh, designated area Um, And, and, you know, and go looking for signs of tigers, elephants, any kind of illegal activity. Um, Previously, this was a very organic process where the guard would choose which area he should go to. Um, A lot of the kind of work of a guard or what's called a daily wage forest laborer is interacting with local communities and, you know, gathering intelligence that way. So this was a very kind of organic process. Uh, you you know where the guards would go to the forest uh, in company of other guards, and you know it would be more of a social process. Uh, in the last few years, what has happened is that there's been this extra demand of datafication, where you know there is this large labor force that you have, uh, you know, as as forest rangers and uh, scientists, especially pe- scientists like in places like Cambridge or in London, you know, or uh, in foreign universities. Thought that why don't we convert this labor process? into an ecological gathering information process. And where, you know, uh, where we, if we automate this we would get more information and then we can make fancy maps and publish more papers. So uh, you, then you started having these forest guards who've never used mobile devices in their lives for doing this. Uh, Now having to complete targets of 10 kilometers uh, and whenever they see like a tiger pug mark they are supposed to mark it on their phone and the entire process is so bad because it's you know it's not done in consent with the guards or not done in a partnership with the guards that it takes them 30 minutes to even start the application and then when you have to feed the feed information in the application it, it takes more time so there are multiple things that are happening here one is that there is severe de-skilling of the labor process because Uh, For a forest guard to identify a tiger pug mark, he would need knowledge of the tiger pug mark, he would need knowledge of the tiger's behavior, or, you know, uh, if there is an animal moving in the forest, his senses need to be active. What's happening with this mobile application is that all that they do is go mark buttons, and uh, and a lot of that knowledge is deteriorating, so there is this de-skilling process that's happening. Uh, secondly, uh, everything's very automated, right? So, uh, they have to continuously look and look at their mobile screens while they're walking just during my uh, stay at Cobet while I was working there, four for frontline forest staff were killed by tigers while they were putting in information Oof, in these yeah. uh, mobile applications. So it also inc- increases worker precarity, you know, the labor precarity increase. And all of these things have been discussed very, very heavily in, in the literature around call centers and, you know, factory floor like settings, like, you know, starting with marks and, uh, you know, the principles of scientific management that Taylorism, uh, you know, uh, Taylor uh, wrote about. But really nothing of this sort was ever documented on a very different kind of a space, which is the forest floor and how these technologies act as workplace uh, surveillance technologies of control. Uh, and the problem here is that the frontline forest staff are also paid very less. So, uh, and they're also a a kind of informal labor. So, uh, you know, the forest department could tomorrow say that we don't want you guys anymore and like fire all of them. Many of them don't get paid for three, three, four, four months. These are people who act in, uh, you know, are working in extreme psychologically disturbing settings uh, away from their families in very, very remote areas with very little entertainment or kind of social life. Uh, And in all of that, they have this kind of control mechanism over them where, uh, you know, all that they do is recorded they even have to click a picture of themselves before they go on on a patrol so that the senior officers know that yes for a staff has gone and and these are all narratives that i mean this is uh, this is all Uh, because of narratives of, uh, you know, forest staff being lazy or not going into patrol. And all of these narratives have originated in Western countries, you know, where uh, Western notions of what work is or what, how conservation is practiced has been kind of forced upon uh, uh, countries in the global South. I I mean, every context is very, very different. Uh, A frontline forest staff's work is not as simple as just going on a patrol and like, uh, uh, you know, what you, what they are essentially doing is uh, converting enforcers or uh, or forest management staff into ecologists and biologists, and they're not. Mm. Uh, and and a lot of work is being deteriorated over that. So that's uh, one part of my research. Also looks into that aspect.
1: That's so fascinating because yeah, you always think of like surveillance of workplaces, like a corporation installing software on your phone, but you don't think of it as like literally yeah. forcing
0: people to input
1: things on their phone while they're in- yeah. Yeah, and coming to,
0: yeah. yeah. And like, you know, again, I forgot about mentioning this that coming back to resistance. So I was initially going to talk about how these laborers and these frontline forest staff resist these processes. So uh, now that because there is this everything is about a metric, right? Like they need to uh, fill you know, fulfill the objective of finishing 10 kilometers, or fulfilling the objective of recording that many signs of say a tiger or a herbivore or, uh, you know, or or an elephant. Now I have come across uh, times when they've uh, done this patrol, but haven't come across a tiger pugmark at all, which is completely natural, right. But the pressure of you know, my senior would think that I didn't go on a patrol. How did I not come across a tiger, tiger pugmark? mark? So they would make tiger pug marks with their hands, like the impression <laughs> of tiger pug <laughs> marks with their hands and then take a picture of it. So they were challenging the surveillance process just like this, you know, <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> so it, that was also a form of resistance. Um, and then and there are other forms of resistance where a forest watcher who is always uh, exploited by senior officers. Uh. He would go and take pictures uh, of every, uh, you know, significant landmark that he was on while walking so that the officers wouldn't say, oh, you didn't go on a patrol. So there is also, uh, there's also the, the technology also helps in, in many ways in terms of, uh, so there is, you know, in my thesis, I argue that there is de-skilling, but there's also upskilling. You know, there is, uh, certain people are really benefiting out of these technologies as well, especially people who are being exploited by their superiors, uh, that they could challenge this decisions of their superiors or their uh, thoughts, assumptions of their superiors by showing records that we, ha- I have gone on to this patrol or I have done this or by resisting the process, as I said.
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, talking about then the militarization of conservation, um, I really liked what you said in your research too. So fascinating about how the poachers versus rangers have this like heroes versus villains narrative. Um, and it really was reminding me of, like, you know, a couple of years ago when there was that crazy internet mob about the American dentist who killed the lion and lion lovers everywhere were up in arms and they even like traveled, they tracked him down and traveled outside his house, right? So this, this idea, you know, poachers as, as people who are just really villainous,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, often external kind of doing it for um, fun or, or not out of necessity. And yet, like as you brought up, right, like there is human versus wildlife Like conflict like people are genuinely killed by tigers or by elephants um so I wonder then is it really the case right that poachers are villainous or is it just like in terms of how the conservation process fits in with like indigenous communities is it is it just that like these local communities are like embedded and adjacent and within wildlife like and they're, they're not really at odds with um or rather, like conservation efforts are kind of like at odds with their everyday practice, or or is it really that like conservation um, efforts are really important, and that these like communities are are, are harming? Um,
0: so that's the a really com- complex question. Okay, so let me. I'll have to answer this in three parts. The first part is uh, poachers versus uh, you know rangers. Now. Uh, poaching is not this one big thing, okay? It is not, uh, poaching has many forms. Also, the word poaching is a colonial word. You know, there are many different forms of what is termed as poaching. There is subsistence hunting. You mentioned Cecile the lion that wasn't poaching at all. It was trophy hunting. Uh, in many countries in uh, the southern part of Africa, trophy hunting is legal. Uh, what happened with Cecile the lion, very tragic or whatever, but it was this very emotional uh, anthropomorphized Uh, outpour of outrage over, you know, this dentist killing this one particular lion when lions are being killed every day by trophy hunters. Uh, And and in many ways, trophy hunting is also good for conservation. There is very good evidence to suggest that as well. Uh, But animal welfare uh, activists are obviously at odds odds with that. A lot of cultures across the world, uh, there is uh, subsistence hunting where animal meat has been consumed for generations and no amount of law is actually going to change that. Now, uh, for example, in, in Peru, uh, uh, you know, there is an area that i worked in that, you know, evidence suggests that there has been hunting of uh, caimans, alligators, and there's been hunting of primates, but that's not really changed any kind of uh, the population trajectory of these primates over a long period, but that's not the case everywhere. For example, in India uh, due to market forces, uh, you know, cultural forms of uh, practice of hunting has changed in many ways. Uh, Bows and arrows are not used anymore. Spears are not used anymore. You have got, you've got guns, Uh, you know, whole load of species and a whole number of them are being killed together. So, you know, I wouldn't kind of uh, romanticize that all indigenous communities are the best conservationists. A lot of uh, social rights activists take this position. I would very vehemently disagree with that. Uh, But at the same time, there are indigenous institutions and local contexts and cultural contexts that are very beneficial for conservation. So I guess it has to be a mix of uh, both uh, state uh, laws and indigenous institutions. Um, Secondly, you know, about this poachers and, you know, rangers narrative. Who are rangers? Uh, The first, the frontline forest guard are mostly people who come from within these communities, okay? Like, uh, so they are, uh, you you know, they are not uh, these some kind of uh, villainous, uh, uh, you know, gun-toting uh gi joes who are going and killing people everywhere uh the same thing is with poachers the you know you could have a poacher a poacher again i would say with you know quotation marks that a poacher could be somebody who's from an organized illegal criminal trade uh person to somebody who's just entering a forest to collect uh you know a meal for the pot so it's very important to make this distinction on who are we calling poachers this is not one big thing and there's plenty of research now on different forms of poaching and you cannot paint poaching as this one big thing Um, but at the same time as I said that you know uh, rangers do so whenever whenever you give uh, any policing body powers to exercise they are bound to get exploited So, and rangers are a policing body. So, uh, you you know, you would have rangers who would commit crimes against people as well. Uh, But again, it's not all this black and white, you know, these, these categories are very fluid. Uh, sometimes uh, a ranger might have to go and pick somebody up from the village who's his own brother, who's gone and, cut, you know, cut something in the forest. So th- there are a lot of social equations at play as well. And again, this is all very context specific. So I would say that this matter is very gray and it is not like this black and white oh, this these are poachers who are all bad and these are rangers who are uh, good or vice versa, that rangers are bad or poachers are good. Uh, a, a lot of social scientists kind of paint this narrative that, you know, rangers are these gun-toting uh, masses. And you know, uh, you, know uh, you know, just uh, agents of the state who are going and k- killing people. No, it's not true. It's, particularly in India, they are actually really, really weak. Uh, I mean, they are they are a labor force that is very, very weak. Uh, who's not got paid in three months? Who's not seen his family in three months? So it's it's very, very context specific. Um, uh, and and uh, and when it comes to like uh, you know conservation o- overall, I mean, I guess uh, you know to kind of uh, meet the objectives or goals of conservation. of Yeah, it's true that, you know, there are so many endangered species. Uh, Tigers are endangered, elephants are endangered. You have lots of species that are going extinct. But the factors that are causing this decline are not local people. Uh, You know, it it is this global... it's global capitalism. It is this consumption of resources. Um, I, I, mean, I mean, in India, it's normally interventions of conservation are directed towards local people. Okay, let's give them solar cookers so that they don't invest in electricity. Let's give them alternative livelihood measures while they are causing the least of the problems. It's people like me who are in cities who have multiple cars or like, you know, you know, multiple homes and the state has to meet that supply. The state has to, uh, you know, then invest in coal, then invest in hydropower, which is then destroying your forests. So I, you know, conservation interventions uh, normally globally are directed towards the wrong people. It is the indigenous people. They are not uh, the the cause of the problem. The cause is global capitalism. and, And that is where interventions should be. But conservation is very, very closely linked to global capitalism. It is this one big industry with, This green economy and tourism and market forces and the entire entire nature has been commodified in so many ways that is a topic which you know you'll need another podcast for alina so i'm sorry i won't get into that so let's we can talk about (laughs) yeah but to answer your question it's very gray it's very nuanced and there is this hero versus villain's narrative only creates more problems than it addresses Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. i know that you said that we need another podcast for conservation but i am going to ask you about (laughs) conservation um so I wonder, because, you know, you said in the beginning of the podcast, right, like conservation is, was a colonial concept in many ways. And so I wonder, um, kind of a two part question. One is that, like, do you think conservation itself as a principle, as a strategy, you know, exactly as you said, it's so linked to global capitalism and colonialism. Do you think that that is really helping? What? Um, whether it's you know preserving the planet, preserving ecology. Um, do, do you think that like we can keep conservation as a category as it is, or do we need to like fundamentally rethink like the way that like humanity is is interacting or our structures with with like the planet at large? Mm-hmm. Um or is it just that like conservation, you know, is a noble cause but has been taken over by bad actors, has, you know, you know, it bleeds into all these things you say, if we call you know, it, it is, it, conservation isn't the problem, but the execution of, of the principles of conservation is causing the problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, very complex question. And again, uh, all the questions you asked have gray areas. So, you know, if, for example, <laughs> if conservation in its form was working, you wouldn't need a cop to happen uh, right now. So it clearly isn't working. Uh, you know, climate change is still a big threat. Uh, deforestation is a big threat. So the way it conservation is being done is not working. Uh, you know, species are still under threat. Uh, you know, uh, if, you know, if conservation was working, you would have, you would have seen that, you know, we, our air would have been much cleaner. We would have forests that were rewilded and you would have more species around everywhere, but it's not working. Um, so I, I really think that, uh, you know, uh, conservation needs to really reflect and fundamentally rethink the way it is practiced. Now, when I mentioned before that conservation, essentially, especially the way it's practiced now was essentially a colonial project, but conservation was has always been done before, right? You know, indigenous communities have always had institutions in place that managed resources uh, carefully, uh, you know, sustainably, uh, you know, and, and, and indigenous communities around the world, so conservation was being done before as well. As a colonial project, it started with this expansion of this idea of pristine wildernesses uh, and game hunting. Uh, you know, when, when the British came to India, they looked at these wild spaces with tigers and elephants and they wanted to hunt game. And they protected these areas so that local people couldn't access the resources or hunt because so that they could hunt for sport and then that sport hunting then came became photography and and then from photography it became tourism so uh, you know uh, that, that's the colonial link to conservation the way the british did it uh, and and that is the model that was adopted everywhere else in the world because it it all started uh, here the idea of conservation and like you know these extreme wilderness areas in in north america with, with uh, you know the yosemite national park in yellowstone and all of that um but you know to answer your question i think uh, you i i do truly believe that for, fundamentally conservation needs to rethink the way it is being practiced uh, there is severe need of decentralization uh, you need to give more rights and more decision making powers to local people who live alongside conservation areas in india there is a landmark legislation that was passed in the year 2005 and 2006 called the forest rights act which aimed at giving rights back to forest dwelling communities which were taken forcefully from them by the state uh, and and you know uh, this there is a section in that which uh, calls for community 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 forests to be, uh, you know, uh, mapped and uh, given back into the control of local communities. Uh, And, uh, and, and, you know, in many places uh, where community forest rights has been implemented, we have seen good change in in, uh, in, in forest cover, in biodiversity. Um, So, uh, uh, in in my opinion, uh, it has to be a mix of both. I think you cannot have uh, the state completely you know, devolved from the process and not involved at all, because you need some kind of regulatory mechanism somewhere. Uh, But yes, it is it is the principles and the way it it is uh, conservation is being practiced that needs to change. I think uh, the rights of people, uh, you know, uh, you know, you need to bring in environmental justice within conservation that you cannot have uh, people outside and people really, really, really powerful people making the decisions while people on the ground bear the consequences uh, of it.
1: I have the last question, which everybody always says is the hardest, but if you could give one piece of advice to any institution or organization, so whether that be the Indian state, WWF, a local government, uh, a local community, you know, pick an institute, Facebook, it's you know, um, what, you know what would that piece of advice be
0: or recommendation be? So I I really think that these technologies of conservation monitoring, uh, particularly camera traps, drones are really important. I think they can be used for some really, really good work. But the way it is being used uh, is the problem, right? So uh, I I would recommend uh, conservation organizations uh, that introduce these technologies to the state first to think about whether the technologies are really needed or not uh, could you have a a replacement? Uh, is it really, really, uh, necessary to introduce these technologies because once you introduce these technologies to the state the state has complete control and they can do whatever they want with it you can have 25 different you know uh, thousands and thousands of ethical committees and risk assessment committees within your organization but when it goes to the state there are no there are no ethics there they they can do whatever they want with it so with and, i mean and this is what has happened with my work as well that uh, you know me along with some researchers at the university of cambridge we came uh, we came up with this paper called the principles for the responsible use of these technologies now these responsible use of technologies are for academic institutions and ngos where they are looking at our principles and then you know putting it putting it up in their ethics committees but what happens when you give it to the state you know we are not uh, you know the state is fi- finally the uh, main user of these technologies so i mean my uh, advice would be to really really think very hard about uh, introducing these technologies in the first place and especially if there are no checks and balances in place Uh, I I would very strongly advise against the use of technologies, particularly in areas where you have marginalized people that live along these areas. Like I said, how drones and camera traps and these thermal devices were being used to really, you know, uh, exploit certain people. Uh, uh, And, and, you know, we see that that with CCTV cameras uh, in urban settings as well, that they they socially sort certain bodies over others. So, uh, yeah, my advice would be to, like, really think very, very hard before you introduce these technologies and really think about whether it is necessary to uh, and if it is what what kind of checks and balances do you have in place so that that the the information that is really sensitive does not go to the state uh, would be my advice.